Welcome to the Writing Westward Podcast. I'm your host, Brennan Rensink. Today we'll be talking about water with Professor Eric P. Paramount and his book, Unsettled Waters, Rights, Law, and Identity in the American West. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Rudd Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. Each episode features a conversation with an author or scholar of new works that explore the North American West. We hope that our discussions will spark your curiosity to learn more and think differently about the North American West as a region and its peoples, environments, histories, literature, and so forth. You can follow Writing Westward on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast or on Twitter at Writing West. You can listen on our website, writingwestward.org, or subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts. We're listed on most major distributors. To learn more about the Red Center, our programming, live streamed lectures, funding opportunities for research and events, or anything else, find us at redcenter.byu.edu. That's R-E-D-D-Center.byu.edu. You can get more regular updates about the Red Center on Facebook and Twitter as well. Thanks for listening. Back in episode four, we spoke about wildfire in the American West as an inescapable history that the region must continually reckon with in the present. In elemental opposition to fire, water in the West is a historical topic and present reality that should likely demand even more of our attention. Much of Euro-American interactions with the West and perceptions of it were defined by the West's waters, or lack thereof. There are many pockets of exceptionally wet places in the West, but wide swaths are environmentally shaped by its aridity. Naturally, the human societies that have thrived and collapsed in the American West have often organized their economics, culture, politics, and laws around water resources. We'll dip our toes into this topic, forgive the pun, for today's episode with Eric P. Paramond, Professor of Environmental Science and Southwest Studies at Colorado College. A geographer by training, Paramount uses ethnography, oral history, archival diggings, and an extensive wrestling with complex legal histories to examine how New Mexico and New Mexicans have used water, organized and managed it as a scarce resource, built identities around it, and over the course of the past century and into the present, legally defined who has rights to the water and how much. His book, Unsettled Waters, Rights, Law, and Identity in the American West, was published by the University of California Press in 2019. In Unsettled Waters, Paramount introduces us to New Mexico's Office of the State Engineer and a legal process called adjudication, wherein, via lawsuit, the state maps and measures water as a public good and assigns private usage rights to it. Adjudication considers historic and contemporary usage and claims, but it is a one-time process that sets those rights in stone. For communities that have managed water collectively through acequia ditch systems that are flexible and adaptable, that entail participatory labor and some level of democratic decision-making, the inflexibility and finality of state-defined water rights is concerning. Though the amounts of water are small, they are essential to those who use them. In basins where sovereign indigenous nations also have different water rights and bring different federal jurisdictions and negotiators to these lawsuits, or growing urban and suburban populations are also demanding water, adjudication processes have dragged on for decades. Paramount's work may be situated in the very unique geography and context of New Mexico legal battles, but the conclusions he draws about how Western populations need to think carefully about water usage and management are universal for the region. 
our western climate offers us no promises of how much water we will have from one season to the next or where it will be available. Thus, our relationship to it and management efforts should be paramount and probably more prominent than they are in our current western public discourse and debate. Professor Eric Paramond, thank you for joining us on the podcast this morning. Uh, thanks, Brendan. I really appreciate your, your time and efforts here, and it's great to be part of this series. Yeah, um, we had an episode a while back on fire, which was at the top of my list of topics I wanted to cover. Mm -hmm. And immediately after that, I said, oh, I need to do an episode on water. So I started hunting for books, and, and yours came up quickly. I'm really excited to be able to kind of talk about this other big environmental issue that's so important for the West. Well, I appreciate it, and uh, given who you spoke with on Fire, Stephen Pine, it's a it's a humbling business to be included in the same series. So I'll, <laughs> I'll do my best to speak broadly about the history of water in the West. When I when I teach about water in the West, you know, I often we often land on John Wesley Powell in our discussions in class, and you know, he came through in the 19th century and wrote this big report, um, sent it back to D.C. and said. Uh, the West is a different place. We can't, uh, you know, the water infrastructure and regimes and settlement patterns that we use in the humid Midwest and East won't work out here in the West. Uh, we didn't quite listen, did we, Eric? Uh, not exactly. And, uh, you know, in some ways, I think Powell was both uh, too early to be listened to uh, in terms of a 20th century kind of ethic or aesthetic on, on water issues that, I think most of us would be a little more open to um, thinking about these days. But I also think in some ways, you know, what we get wrong is he actually came too late uh, to the issue and tried to move the policy um, well after the Homestead Act was in full effect, well after most territorial governors were in place and thinking geometrically rather than in terms of watershed shape. And I think Powell's legacy is, is a powerful one, but I, I'm sometimes uh, more skeptical that his legacy is the one that we think um, it is, especially in uh, Western historical circles. So mm. I'm a huge fan of his, um, you know, obviously his expedition, the bravery, uh, but I have actually become more uh, interested in his work at the Bureau of Ethnology, um, his work in guiding sort of early anthropology in the West, such as it was. Yeah, he had a whole um, career after. Exactly. You know, yeah. after he critiqued and was basically ignored by the Western uh, early water buffalo policymakers and politicians at the time who didn't want to hear it uh, about limiting settlement in the West because of heredity. Um, you know, they moved him on to other roles where <clears throat> perhaps unknowingly he actually did uh, – uh, a lot more good uh, than they thought he was going to be able to do, and uh, and his eventual role, you know, at, at Reclamation, really, and sort of USGS, he was able to start the first hydrology boot camp, which I write about in Unsettled Waters, uh, right there to you know Embudo Station, which today is you know a nearly broken down log cabin, but now running a restaurant and has been for you know several decades. They've tried to revive that structure, but um, but there, you know, uh, Frederick Newell ran his. Uh, his first hydrography camp to try to train a new generation of uh, water experts. So the you know the legacy of Powell is uh, pretty distinctive, but I think we uh, sometimes overemphasizes you know well if we'd only listened to him on his wisdom of political watersheds and organizing the West in you know non-Cartesian ways and you know there's a lot more that he did that um, I think is a longer-lasting direct measure on agencies and policy measures and uh, so you know that was. In some ways, I included him just to be able to kind of <laughs> deflect to a different angle 
for um, the audience, hopefully, and, and I hope that message doesn't get lost. But uh, but yeah, you know what a influential person. But um, but this 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 story starts earlier, and that's that's really my major point in writing this book. So. Yeah, I mean, and we'll, I mean, we're, we're gonna we're gonna dig through you know some of these historic uh, water use mm. uh, systems in New Mexico uh, when Powell and you know other Anglo-Americans arrive on the scene in the arid west, be it New Mexico or uh, mm-hmm. you're in Colorado, right? That's right. Um, there's a lot of arid regions in Colorado. Um, I'm in Utah, and uh, we're dry as a bone. Uh, well, this year maybe it was the anomaly, but um, yeah, uh, quite dry. But uh, there had been people living here for a long time before who developed yeah. some very complex uh, systems to to deal with water, and we'll we'll, we'll get to some of those. Yeah. Um, but but all this talk about how important water is, I'm mm-hmm. always struck by how divorced many Westerners, especially those of us who live in urban or suburban settings, sure. um, how divorced we are from the realities of water scarcity. You know, I, I can mm-hmm. turn on the tap and water comes out. Mm-hmm. The, the the maybe my water rates go up, <laughs> but those of us who don't live in agricultural settings or rural settings where People are living off well water. Um, we don't quite uh, get it, do we? No, and I think that's you know where um, even for those of us who live with the, the privilege of urban water and, and turning on taps, as you put it, or just paying someone else to provide the water, uh, we're actually rarely paying for the water itself, uh, if ever. You know, most of that is conveyance, transportation, and utility costs. Uh, rather than a cost for the water itself, which I think is one of the big um, problems we have, and it's also one of the biggest opportunities we have to shape a new kind of relationship with water, because if we're going to accept that water has a price, okay, well, then it should have a price, mm-hmm. and uh, we can't have it both ways. Uh, it's, it strikes me as a perfect paradox that here in the American West, um, where everyone is uh, seemingly accepting of um, private enterprise and capitalism, that we want water for free, but everything else is privatized and has to be uh, paid for in some um, direct or indirect way. And more so than anywhere else in the country. I mean, here in the West, water infrastructure is an enormous undertaking, right? we're, We're piping water, not just across watersheds, but across states, and that costs something. That's that's exactly right, and I, and I think one of the the fundamental points that you know most Westerners who've lived here most of their life west of the Mississippi understand most of the time where their water comes from, but it still uh, shocks me occasionally when I'm just talking uh, to folks here in town in Colorado Springs that that uh, a lot of folks don't understand where their water's coming from, the Western Slope, and that 80% of the water in Colorado is coming west. Um, of the front range and then piped you know through a series of four five six foot tunnels basically um, across the the ranges to the front range where 80 percent of the population lies so you know we, we have it backwards in terms of a settlement history and and that's where I think that mismatch in time between land policy and water policy mm. that Powell sort of rightly pointed out he's um, a few decades too late smacks us exactly yeah. and you know we settled down in these places that were easy because they were the first reachable places and they were on water courses, but we didn't at the time understand that, you know, a Denver or, um, you know, a Phoenix or a Colorado Springs would, would bloom to several hundred thousand or a million people. And, um, that's the fundamental challenge. And, and I have to say that books like, uh, Cadillac Desert, um, do a great service in understanding what 
on infrastructure does for us, how much it's cost us, and things. But it it sort of underestimates how much hard work had to be done by folks whose job it was to provide water for ratepayers. And uh, I have to flag, you know, um, Patricia Limerick's book, uh, uh, The Addition Time, which is a very different uh, project and almost uh, a full-throated defense of urban water efforts in the West, um, which uh, it, it took me by surprise in terms of the tone of it. But I think she has a right is that we underestimate how much we owe those early urban uh, infrastructure um, engineers and, and lawyers and city planners and, and providing those. So th- there's a lot that we underestimate and misunderstand about water. But uh, but yeah, it's too often taken for granted. Well, let's move down to uh, New Mexico then. <clears throat> I I hesitate to ask for you to weigh in on the Colorado versus New Mexico chili debate <laughs> and who makes the better chilies. I mean, uh, you live in Colorado and you worked in New Mexico for this book, so yeah. maybe you'd be the most informed. But I have a feeling that'd probably just get you in trouble, wouldn't it? It it might, but I'm okay with the question because uh, uh, to me it it's uh, it, it it doesn't. Um, in the end, matter all that much. It matters only to the folks growing it um, and who eat it a lot. <laughs> uh, and if I had to defer, I would go with the New Mexico chili only because it was uh, farmed and um, commercialized there, and they have their own sort of hatch yeah. uh, green chili sort of um, fetish with this uh, delicious dish. And I do admit to putting it on almost everything we <laughs> are in New Mexico, whether that's a cheeseburger or uh, tamales or my eggs. Um, but I will say I do enjoy the Pueblo chili when it's available and, uh, tends to have a, a different taste to it, but, uh, that's as far as I'm going to go. All right. It's well, like, I like, yeah, I like yeah, them both. Yeah. yeah right. Um, I hope you don't get any picketers outside your office. Upset I, you know, I kind of doubt it. And okay. I don't mind being thrown chili at, you know, it's not like rock. <laughs> so in your book, unsettled waters, um, you're looking at both the history, uh, uh, the you know, deep history, recent history, present, and some uh, of the future about water in New Mexico, water um, law, the rights people have to water, and then the ways that their relationships with water have shaped individual identities, community identities, um, inter-community relationships, all kinds of things. But all around the issue of water, paradoxically, the amounts of water that are being litigated are, are quite small. But um, as you lay out, very, very influential. Can we take a few minutes to talk about some of the different constituencies of water users in New Mexico that are, they kind of are, fill out the cast of characters? Because because you, you conducted a lot of kind of oral history interviews. A lot of this book is built off your field work of talking with yeah. people. Um, and uh, so let's talk about this cast of characters. So first, well, who would you like to start with? Well, I think fundamentally I have to acknowledge that uh, where I started in the the work itself over a decade ago uh, was asking some what I thought fairly innocent questions at the time, hoping to produce some you know brief high country news piece about the status of sequias and how they were dealing or not dealing with climate change issues and you know as I lay out early on in the book I sort of <clears throat> asked an innocent question about um, this, are kind of, these... this, this is your opening vignette right? oh yes yeah. And, uh, you know, I was uh, quickly corrected uh, by someone on a ditch as we were walking in. And I sort of asked if these water rights were adjudicated. And I thought that was an innocent question. Uh, little did I know that I just used the uh, the A word, um, adjudication. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, Miguel sort of turned around and looked at me in the eye. And he's like, who wants to know? <laughs> 
And so I think there's a double entry point there. One is that I acknowledge I started with the, uh, you know, largely Hispano village acequias, uh, the ditches that run throughout New Mexico, which totals somewhere between 800 and 900. There's never been a thorough kind of census of these things. Um, people have tried, but, um, you know, what, what constitutes a single ditch is, is sometimes tricky work to count. Could you explain the, hy- the hydrology and history of the acequia system? Yeah. Some rural Westerners are familiar with ditch irrigation systems. Yeah. But this is uh, something much older and, and a little bit unique in, in how it's administered. Yeah, and I, I'll, I'll go back a little bit because much of what I've learned early on was from the, uh, well, the New Mexican intelligentsia of Jose Rivera, uh, Silvia Rodriguez, um, a later arrival, um, Stanley Crawford, who wrote about this in Meyer Domo, but acequias are community ditches that are organized around watersheds, and they they really stem uh, all the way back to the Middle East, roughly put. But you can find these kinds of systems in Nepal and um, northern India. I mean, it has a, a longevity to it. So the the absolute or origins of acequias is a little murky, but it is uh, an irrigation system that is, again, village-based, community-based, um, not exactly perfectly egalitarian, but it, it, it is both a reference to the ditch, the physical ditch itself, that diverts naturally from a stream course with something as simple as a few rocks. Uh, these days, they tend to be more concrete outtakes and ditches that – uh, that then line along an earthen ditch to deliver water to people's fields. Um, and the people who live along the um, acequia are called parciantes, as in shareholders uh, or parcel owners uh, or partial owners. And uh, there's always a supervisor, a mayordomo, who uh, takes care of business and allocates water, uh, especially when times are scarce. But it is a, a system with centuries, if not millennia, uh, of experience sort of adaptability um, and a kind of longevity and flexibility in the system that um, I think most, you know, even Western uh, engineers would envy in terms of its uh, long-term functionality, uh, even if sometimes I've, I've heard, um, shall we say, more modern water experts look down on it and call it, you know, primitive or primordial or orally or inefficient. But, you know, it depends on what efficiency means and what do we – what do we value in terms of that efficiency? So it, it goes way back, and I think it's it's one of the kind of uh, shadow uh, infrastructure and landscape cultural histories that um, a lot of folks just don't know about in this country. And uh, I've always been fascinated with them. I ran into them the first time in the early 90s. So going back to um, when we first moved out here to Colorado College in 2005, I thought, well – I'll start with a regional project that's in you know my backyard, so to speak, and go down to New Mexico and, and uh, explore these acequias. And once I asked that adjudication question, I was quickly down the rabbit hole uh, of trying to understand what was happening on these ditches because or despite these adjudication procedures, which are basically court cases um, that are handled very differently across each western state uh, because, as you know, we have no national water policy for quantity. Mm-hmm. Um, we have the Clean Water Act of the late 60s, but that's it. Um, and so each state um, in the country is left to its own devices to figure out, well, how do you want to allocate water use, ownership, rights? Do states own the water? Do they give absolutely private property rights? So, But that's where I started is along these acequias. And it's not to say that the prior peoples who had long been in place in the southwest, whether that's the um, the various Pueblo native sovereigns, 
the Diné, the Navajo, um, the Ute uh, peoples of um, originally this state, yeah. you know, would have had water use of some sort. And in, and in many cases, they had ditch offtakes, uh, floodwater farming. Uh, I think the extent of it is still we're in the early stages of knowing how fully complex that was. But certainly you have – if you go back another thousand years, you have the Hohokam in southern Arizona who had – uh, fairly irrigation network, yeah, of irrigation networks in southern Arizona through Tucson and Phoenix, and so this was not new. And um, one of my fundamental goals with the book was really trying to get people to understand that this is a, a great case to think about New Mexico because it's it's one of the few states where you have these three overlapping water cultures: um, indigenous. Uh, first colonizer, Spanish, uh, Mexican. Uh, Mexican indigenous layer and then the later Anglo-American period that all pretend in some ways to know what their legal rights are. They all pretend to be in charge of water, and yet a lot of those conceptions and how they think about water are in some ways irreconcilable. And so to force that into an adjudication into court uh, illuminates the entire set of conflicts and overlapping layers and where the similarities and real differences are. So when does adjudication starts in the early 1900s in New Mexico, correct? Yeah, and this is the fascinating part is that, you know, each state handles it very differently. So, um, you know, when I looked at Colorado, they said, well, it's considered fully adjudicated, but that's also because it's individually driven. So individuals have to present their water rights to uh, a local district court. You know, there are seven divisions in Colorado that handle these, and these are state courts uh, where a judge also plays water judge as well. Uh, it's a very different system uh, that's petitioned individually, and then they oversee that, and it can be updated. So it's kind of an organic living adjudication, and it's it's really considered uh, fully adjudicated at this point, even if there are changes. Uh, in New Mexico, the process is far different because it's what they're trying to do is a, what's called a general stream adjudication, but there is nothing general about it. It's very specific. It's very demanding, uh, and it's a bit like taking a one-to-one time-space ratio census of where water is, who owns it, what it's being used for at any particular time. And like a lot of Western states, most of those um, updates, if, if something was adjudicated in the 1930s and 60s, well, let's say it's not exactly living or updated quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a legal administrative process where the attorney general and the office of the state engineer uh, decide to file suit for any watershed or sub-watershed. And basically everyone then gets sued to um, prove their water rights, and you start getting correspondence um, from the state of New Mexico about proving your water rights. And so they do extensive research prior to that and send out letters of offer. But as you can imagine, in a state that's had two separate colonial legacies of uh, lost resources, lost land, first the indigenous peoples who were stripped away um, from their access and um, – cultural existence in some ways, and then once the Anglos started doing that to both peoples, both Pueblos and Hispanos, you can imagine it might get complicated to try to send out legal papers, uh, at first in English, um, to uh, speakers of multiple languages uh, in a state that was culturally diverse and very suspicious of of any new state efforts to try to um, control and map out resources for them. And now they're coming for their water. That is the perception, right? So this is why when you were speaking with Miguel and you mentioned adjudication, the hairs in the back of his neck stood up, right? Because yeah, he exactly. was in a non-adjudic. There are still many um, watersheds and basins that have not been adjudicated. 
Uh, in fact, most basins are not adjudicated yet and uh, are barely in the process stages at this point. Uh, something like a third of the surface area has been adjudicated in New Mexico. Um, and it's not to say that the Office of State Engineer doesn't have individual uh, water rights sort of well understood for, oh, 70 or 80 percent of the state. But in terms of a basin level picture that's been processed through a court supervised by a judge, it's early days. And that's the shocking part is when I came to this, I thought, wait. There's a 1907 water code that even precedes the existence of the state of New Mexico, which is 1912. That's right. It's still and a territory. Yeah. And they've been adjudicating since then. So I just thought, oh, this is hilarious. This is a bit like a Luis Borges short story or a C.S. Lewis short story about um, you know, producing a one-to-one map that blots out the sun because it duplicates the very existence uh, of New Mexico as we know it um, in time in the 20th century and into the 21st. And it's just been a massive effort and uh, to try to do this in a state that has always been resource poor, shall we say, mm-hmm. uh, is a vast undertaking. And the office has always been understaffed uh, for this purpose at the uh, OSE, the Office of the State Engineer. So, uh, you know, reading through some of the early archival reports from the territorial engineer, as he was called for the first you know decade or so. Uh, of his office existence are pretty tragic comic. You know, you have this one person who's left to his own devices, can't even afford a desk, uh, not provisioned by the state in any kind of revenue or compensation, and he's asked to create a census of this vast western rectangular arid state uh, to try to find the waters <laughs> that are being used and what might be left over. I mean, it's it's easy to kind of judge in retrospect, but that's one of those human stories that I think it's hard to forget once you start looking at the the minutia of uh, yeah, of who's an, doing the work. it's a nice clean square state but <laughs> uh, covered with uh very not square watersheds and mountains and uh, basins and sub basins and uh, right quite, yeah. quite the task so we yeah. have these these three groups them basakia uh, kind of uh, systems which span across a lot of the state you have mm. uh, native sovereigns some of which are using asakia systems Correct. Um, but their legal rights and legal uh, relationships with the federal and state governments are very different than um, those who are not claiming native heritage. Um, Quite. The, the other stakeholder yeah. that you haven't really mentioned is then kind of just the growing, regardless of ethnicity, uh, the yep. growing kind of urban-suburban population, the cities, That's right. who yeah. want water not for agricultural use but for for, for drinking water. Right. And, uh, you know, in some ways it's uh, I mean, I don't want to get into um, our our national political uh, dimensions here, but in some ways it it mimics in some ways what is uh, an increasingly frayed uh, urban rural relationship rather than a a frayed state to state or blue red partisan Mm -hmm. relationship is that this is what we get wrong. Uh, about the story of this is that most agricultural water users are just deathly afraid that cities will come in, swoop in, buy their water rights, and that's that. And it's even if it doesn't affect them directly, if they're not selling out, quote unquote, their water rights, if you're on a shared ditch and part of that flow is diminished and has to be retired because of purchase of water rights, that's the real concern. And so, you know, whether it's the, you know, the Pueblo have a little less to worry about because they have federally reserved rights that cannot be expunged or sold uh, once they're secured. Um, but it's the federal government's job to oversee that and to protect it. There's a trustee and sovereign of sovereigns relationship there that, um, and I'm being quite literal here, that non-Indians, this is how they're phrased in, in the law, 
anybody who's not Pueblo, not Diné, not part of a, a reservation group, uh, has to deal still with state water law. And so the Office of State Engineer has um, leeway and oversight over anybody who is a non-Indian, whether you are mixed indigenous heritage living off res, whether you are um, an Hispano um, whose descendants go back to early 1600s in, in the original uh, foundation um, of the uh, – of the well, what would have been Nuevo Mexico at the time. Mm-hmm. And then also Anglo-Americans and anybody else who came along. So it, it's, a, it's a real cleaving of identity that then parcels out the jurisdiction of water and what rules you have to abide by. And I try to make that clear. Yeah. But I still feel like I'm in the early drafts of my own understanding. Of this. <laughs> it's a mess. It is a mess of a system, which is maybe why it's, you know, 100 years after it started, they're still trying to work their way through some of these cases. When the state comes in and says, "Okay, we're going to adjudicate this this watershed or this mm-hmm. this base in this region," mm-hmm. what's the process? And and all of these all of the region's water users, you know, get these letters. They're basically being brought into a lawsuit by the state, saying you need mm-hmm. to come in and prove uh, what rights you have to water, how much you've used historically, how much you're using now, mm-hmm. so that the state can apportion those rights, kind of in official form in writing. And then sell the surplus. That, that's kind of right. the big picture. So if you are um, an Asekia user, what do you have to do the next day? What is the process that these often very kind of small town rural, I mean, often not people of great means. What is it that they have to then yeah. do to, in the short and long term, secure their rights to water? Right. That's the that's the $64,000 question. And in some ways, it's the fundamental um Departure for misunderstandings because from a state level, um, expert level, um, liberal rights, um, economics view of someone who's a politician, this all seems like, well, this is what a state does is offer its citizens certified rights to what we consider private property. Well, okay, but that fundamentally assumes that water or water rights are a private property as opposed to one held in trust by a community. So – First um, aspect to this is that you know even if you get an offer of judgment, which is typically what it's called, it was a letter from the state, and they would say, well, we've done research on your parcel of two acres. We think you are deserving of 6.2 acre feet per year. Is that the first um, notice they get? That is usually the first notice they get. So, so un- unbeknownst uh, to them, the state has already been researching their water rights. Oh, absolutely. And early on, it was a, a sudden shock to get these kinds of letters. Um, the process changed over time to one where they would be notified that uh, the basin um, was going to be adjudicated uh, and to start to prepare for that. The second letter would then start with offers of judgment at the individual mm-hmm. level. So it's not to say um, that the process hasn't changed over time, You know, just like everything else. Does this uh, impact how people then start using water? Do they all start – Upping their yeah. water usage as a way to right. <laughs> kind of quickly prove that they – right? It, it turns this into more of a competitive uh-huh. uh, scene than maybe – than a cooperative one. Yeah, and and I think depending on how and when the adjudication was done, what the perceptions from certain users were – I mean it, it's highly variable across New Mexico too because watersheds are really different one from another. So if you have competing users or more than two cultures trying to share water – what adjudications, um, as early lawsuits did, was spark, uh, let's say, a, um, a performance of water use that mm-hmm. may or may not have reflected the actual water uses at the time, 
because if you're going to have to prove your uh, property rights ownership, and this would be across all cultures, uh, of course people want to be seen working with the water, uh, and people were absolutely intent on maximizing their water use uh, to show that yes, of course we've always used it this way. This is what we're planning this year. You know, it's water hungry. We need all the rights secured. And that gets especially dicey in, in watersheds like Taos and um, you know the Pocahuake Valley mm-hmm. where you have uh, native sovereigns, the Pueblo, whether that's Taos Pueblo up in Taos, uh, or um, you know if you have Nambe and Santo Domingo Pueblo, you know all in the same watershed, and they're all uh, going to be expecting uh, full allocated rights. Well, so will the non-Indians who have shared that valley and depended on the same water, and so. The early days of adjudication sparked serious use of water, and that's one of the things I try to make clear in the book. Now, whether that's um, something to make a big deal about, I'm more circumspect because I think it's uh, more of an instantaneous effect that when you're being observed, of course, you're going to look busy. It's a bit like when the the boss comes down the hall and everybody scrambles to be like, oh, shut down your video games and get back to work. So I think part of this was uh, a kind of momentary, spontaneous use of that water. But um, it certainly highlighted the fact that um, people understood that they had to uh, be seen performing and doing work with water to be able to get um, the full provision of water. At least that was the perception. And But you do talk in, in various points about – it's not that ju- adjudication suddenly threw these regions into conflict or competition no. because there had been competing you know, water uses um, – uh, you know, for for centuries, but that the adjudication process sometimes brought these things to the surface or made them more visible. Yeah, but I found interesting, especially in you know, in cases like say in Taos, where um, Taos Pueblo, uh, the headwaters of most of the water for that basin are on Taos Pueblo lands. Right. right? Correct. So they could, it, it would be their legal right to make a call on the entire, on on all the water. Correct. Right. And everyone living downstream has always known that, at least mm-hmm. since since Taos Pueblo, you know, was granted rights by the U.S. government and so forth. So, so that there's always been kind of these latent, not fears, but uh, I, I assume paranoia is about what if our our native neighbors make a call on the river, which is their legal right to do, and and now the adjudication process really brings that out. That's exactly right. So, to, to me, at least my way of thinking, looking at at least the case for New Mexico of sort of centuries of, of water conflict, really, and accommodation and sharing arrangements is that this is nothing new, but it was the latest new thing that served as a kind of legal catalyst um, for new conflicts or resurfacing old grudges yeah. or at least recapitulating what might be um, more flexible arrangements for the future. So everyone had a stake in trying to maximize the claims uh, and use terms that they might be awarded, and you know, again, this this goes all the way back to Spanish colonial days in New Mexico, where you know, juez de aguas, uh, a judge of the waters, would be appointed, you know, by the provincial governor to settle disputes between pueblos and Hispano settlers nearby. And almost always, the provisions are for well, okay, the indigenous peoples were here first, but what's just and equitable for what people need to be able to survive in New Mexico was also a consideration. So it was never just raw prior appropriation of mm-hmm. first and foremost water rights. It was also, okay, well, these people are sharing the valley anyway, so they were essentially dealing with a reality to try to create shared arrangements. That um, seems like a more flexible yeah. or pragmatic or 
process that might be altered in the future as situations right. change, whereas adjudication is it's more of a final say, which I assume makes people more nervous. Yeah, I mean, I think that's how it was taken: is that this is the last opportunity to retain, lose, fight for, or gain water rights of any kind. Um, and you know, I don't begrudge any party for trying to maximize these things. I mean, it's, it's no wonder that these adjudication lawsuits sometimes lasted five decades. Uh, creating the longest-running federal cases in U.S. history because these were high stakes, and for you know some of the indigenous sovereign um, nations here involved, especially when they were never quantified in terms of their water rights, this was the last resource layer where they had some leverage to get some measure of lost justice for land or cultural patrimony or the Indian schooling of their children. I mean, yeah. I think it became such high stakes because they saw it as the last stand. Uh, for questions of sovereignty and resource and even the future of their people. So, um, you know, I think that's critical to understand um, in these lawsuits. So if you were an Asakia user and you get this letter of judgment, right? Um, they say, you know, we can tell that, you know, your great-great-grandfather started using this in 1925. Mm -hmm. Could you then go to the archives or pull out family documents, pull things out to say, no, uh, we've been here using this right. this amount of water since – you know, 1783, or is so? Is there kind of this archival, you know, race to go dig up the oldest water rights you can? That's exactly right, and I I try to you know um, delve into that a bit into unsettled waters, but I think you know it, it created an archival scramble, and whether that archives um, really was the personal household document, if you were lucky enough to have something like that, were those I mean, respected? They're respected if they're genuine um, and if people actually have a copy of that. I mean I think part of the, our struggle here in trying to understand a place like New Mexico is that so much of the um, – what is taken to be history is very much oral history, mm -hmm. lived history, an organic one that's lived as opposed to trapped in dusty parchment paper or archives that uh, may or may not reflect their understanding. So when a village you know, is dates from 1713 – Lots of places say, well, that's our priority date is 1713. Uh, whereas the state wanted to parcel the, you know, the village up to say, oh, yeah, but, you know, but among you individuals, who was first? Yeah. And I think this fundamental misreading of who was first as opposed to, no, the, the village is set first because these were deeded trusts where a group of settlers were given an area or settled an area together. So instead of individual ownership acts, these were often communal ownership acts. So you're lucky if you're a Hispano uh, descendant and you have a document that dates to you know <laughs> the 1700s, much less the 1600s, because a lot of that um, documentation prior to 1680 was burned up in the Pueblo Revolt yeah. of 1680. So it you know it's it's very much trying to adjudicate going from an oral to a written. Um, system of documentation, and that's really what creates headaches on all sides, as you might imagine, is trying to find documents that establish these claims. Are they genuine? Uh, can you dig something up from a county clerk from the 19th century that documents at least part of your family name? Uh, oh, so man. people were desperate to find any mention of this, um, even if at the village level people had a generally good understanding of what they were farming, how much, how much water they needed. So did the state respect oral tradition or say archaeology or kind of other non-documentary uh, sources uh, uh, for these dates? Yeah, early on I would say less so. And over time, as adjudications unfold in the 20th century, uh, more so. And that's mm -hmm. to give them credit for recognizing that um, 
how do I put this, that most of these educations really accelerated when New Mexico was in their um, heyday of water infrastructure build out, which is really in the 1960s. Um, there's some prior to that, you know, in southern New Mexico, Elephant Buttes fairly early, um, but there were very few acequias down there. There were some community ditches, but in northern New Mexico, most of this infrastructure, and I try to um, detail this, is that a lot of these uh, legal lawsuits triggered by the state, well, they carry them out only when they have to, when a new water infrastructure or federal infrastructure project, uh, a dam, new canal system, a reservoir is being built. And so they have to figure out, okay, wait, if we impound these in a bathtub, who owns each little parcel? And that's that's part of the consequences of all this. Is that often in the tr- – yeah, so that's the trigger often of why, often. One, why one basin is going to be adjudicated and another is left on its own for decades. Unless people are suing each other already. So uh-huh. that, you know, most of the time the state will initiate adjudications, but there are lawsuits, um, adjudication cases named after the original parties, uh, that sued each other. You know, the, the Zuni, um, area was triggered by lawsuits between private parties. Uh, the Mimbres was actually triggered between private parties. So. Is that because they saw it coming? They saw it coming and that there was an active legal dispute. So all it takes is one claimant saying, wait, our water rights have not been uh, afforded here, they're being violated, and then it enters in, and the attorney general, office of the state engineer, have to become inv- involved as uh, basically active litigants um, mm-hmm. and as co-plaintiffs to the case. So it's hugely complex, but uh, as you might imagine, the the scramble um, to create <laughs> and find that evidence uh, is also broadly interdisciplinary, and that was the part that also fascinated me in these: is that it's not just a lawsuit. Is that it? It, it encumbered, it created, and entrained, and really cultivated a whole set. Of expertise on water, uh, regardless of your home discipline, whether you're an archaeologist, an anthropologist, an historian, an engineer, water lawyer. Um, and, and what's fascinating is that as the state of New Mexico struggled to uh, forge ahead with adjudications, it created this whole phalanx of people uh, that had to be recruited to understand water and all its complexity. Uh, and that, to me, is fascinating. I did want to mention a lot of this reminds me of Pablo Bacigalupi's The Water Knife. Hmm. Have you have you read that novel? I, I have. I think actually in some previous episode I did mention that book in some context, but hmm. uh, for the listeners, it's this kind of post-apocalyptic Southwest suffering from mega droughts, right, where hmm. um, cities are fighting against cities to uh, claim water rights because if Phoenix gets the water rights instead of Vegas, Phoenix survives and Vegas all dies, right? Correct. And and so you have it's. People are being killed and there's spies and all kinds of crazy stuff, but it's all about trying to get water rights. And mm-hmm. I don't want to spoil it too much, but there's there's a rumor in the book. There's this rumor that someone had found mm-hmm. some kind of documentation for the oldest water rights possible right. that would spell either the triumph or the doom of whatever – kind of almost semi-sovereign city could find this dusty old document, right? That's, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Anyways, um, yeah. It's, yeah. it's pretty wild. I, I, didn't, I didn't love everything about the book, um, sure. but I, uh, I thought that the world it was set in and uh, that premise was, was pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah. So and, you didn't and, see as much intrigue and um, literal stabbing in the back and <laughs> murder and espionage as, Pajo, as Pablo Bacigalupi did? No, in my case, thankfully, most of the conflicts I had were um, legal and figurative, not literal and physical. But uh, it's not to say that physical conflicts haven't occurred. You know, in the past, that uh, you know, there, there's obviously violence embedded in any legal policy that's been 
prescribed by a federal or state entity because that usually means that there was violence or something that needed to be settled in the first place. I mean, prior appropriation in Colorado was created to prevent, you know, bearded white miners from shooting each other yeah. over mining claims and water needed to sluice through, you know, placer mines or claims. So, you know, this entire premise is is based on trying to limit violence. But, but once you're named in a lawsuit, yeah, that suddenly makes it very intimate and personal and emotional for the individual. Yeah. Right. Um, um, I mean, so if they're, if they're trying to limit interpersonal conflict and violence, I mean, in some places, maybe they had they had understandings, they had ways of working through it for the last few decades. And now suddenly it kind of stirs the pot again. I think that's right. I mean, I think, you know, there's there's a, a troubling danger to formalizing everything on the ground that's informal. And so if adjudication as a legal process tries to indurate or cement some new prescription for the future that seems less flexible, that's less dependent on social relationships and trust or a handshake across ditches or cultures, I think that's where we run into the um, this aspect that adjudication serves as a catalyst for conflict, not as a, a settler. Of conflict, mm-hmm. especially <laughs> and, with a resource yeah. like water that is not a finite yeah. resource that we know every year there will be this exact amount of water, so everyone gets this portion of it. I mean, you know, uh-huh. we could have rainy years, we could have very dry years. So that yeah, that's it. That seems. To, I mean, if I was a small farmer, that's that's terrifying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, and I think in some ways we've underestimated and really devalued the flexibility and the inherent. Um, genius of these systems that have occupied arid spaces across the globe for centuries. I mean, oh, if you go from New Mexico, yeah. yeah, the acequias, you can find them from New Mexico all the way down to Patagonia. It's an inherent uh, system that, that makes use of surface water, and I will make a note here, not, not groundwater. groundwater. Yes. That is not obviously uh, renewable, and it does it in a seasonal and annual way, as opposed to pretending, for example, since we're talking about western water, that in the 1922 Colorado River Compact that, you know, there's somehow magically 18 million acre feet running in the Colorado based on one record year. And the entire compact gets forged around these fictitious numbers. Yeah. The anomaly year. One or two years. Yep. And then everyone doesn't want to touch it afterwards. And this comes up even in, you know, uh, fairly advanced water wonk discussions. Uh, I was just at the um, law school up at Colorado Boulder and – People were talking about the Colorado River as an untouchable holy scripture that if you touched it, oh, it would set the whole thing into conflict again. So we're unwilling to be flexible about these fictitious numbers. And so, you know, as I joke a little bit in the book, there's a natural science and a social science fiction of water that, again, is fascinating if you approach it from a non-legal perspective, is that we like to pretend these things exist or that they we pretend that um, you know groundwater to surface water transitions and transactions and transfers are equivalent in time and space, even if people are retiring groundwater in one place hundreds of miles away from their eventual use as surface water somewhere else. And so these acts that that uh, Western states perform, um, we have to call them out for the kinds of fiction that I think the water knife can actually highlight as somehow absurd. Yeah. Um, and we have choices to make, but uh, we're unwilling to treat these numbers as somehow non-fixed and that water is variable um, because then oh, policy would be too difficult. And that to me is a, a real telling danger sign. And that's where I end with the book is that – if we are to learn anything about these sort of shared arrangements between cultures that preexisted, you know, the arrival of uh, an Anglo-American legal state trying to award property rights to water 
users is that sharing in proportional numbers in these compacts might have to be an arrangement that is acceptable and the order of the day as opposed to fixed numbers that have never existed. The the state doesn't like that, though. <laughs> no. They want to start a process, finish the process, and, and move on. This is where I wanted to get kind of in eventually. Is it, mm. And, I mean, for listeners, there's there's so much in this book that we've glossed over. Uh, there's a number of these kind of huge ongoing multi-decade cases that you go through in different chapters, um, mm-hmm. the Amot and Abeta cases, um, mm-hmm. which I found really fascinating. Uh, I was fascinated by some of the discussions of, of identity and conflicted identities where, you you know, you have even within a, a, a single family who has mixed Hispano and indigenous uh, bloodlines, which in mm-hmm. certain regions uh, almost everyone does. And even mm-hmm. within a certain family, you had one story where two brothers, one in the adjudication case claimed his native Pueblo identity, the other claimed kind of his Hispano identity, and mm-hmm. they fall under different jurisdictions then. Um, but yeah. uh, anyways, there, there's so much here that we that I would encourage readers to go to go dig through because kind of under this incredibly complex legal story are some really fascinating and some kind of really fascinating human stories. You end the book by saying we need to follow the water, mm-hmm. which I find <laughs> I think that sounds very good. Mm-hmm. Right. We need to follow the realities of where water is, mm-hmm. how much water there is, mm-hmm. and the contingency of how all that might change uh, yeah. tomorrow or in 10 years or 50 years. Yeah. So how do, um, as a, as maybe as individuals, um, but then also as you know societies and, and cities, in, in practical terms, how, how do we do that? How do we follow the water? Yeah, and I, I want to back up because I think in some ways uh, that could easily be misinterpreted even by me as I was finishing up a first, second, or third draft of the book as somehow this overly romantic notion that, oh, if we just listen to the wisdom of the ancestors, we'll be fine. <laughs> I don't think that's absolutely true because you know we've made water this fundamentally simple substance that occurs in multiple forms really complicated and not just through physics, um, through our treatment of it in law and policy and economics. And so what I mean by following the water is we can't imagine there's anything else but water uh, because of the artificial treatment given to paper water rights versus, and I'm not kidding here, wet water, as engineers like to talk about it. So the idea that you own three-acre feet of water, no, only legally and on paper, but what exists in space and time, well, there may only be 1.3 acres of water on your field. Oops. And I think this notion of following the actual water What I was trying to get at is that we're going to have to approach water in very different ways Um, and in terms of a stalking sustainability where we are smart about using the renewable supplies and trying to be flexible about not cementing in these legal um, scriptures, compacts, uh, and measures that are immeasurably inflexible. I mean up until a few years ago, I could not capture rain from my roof in a rain barrel here in my garden. It was against the law? It was against the law because of the lawsuit, basically, between Colorado and Kansas. um, Over the the Republican River? Uh, The Republican and the Arkansas River. You're you're using a rain barrel was taking water out of the watershed that should have been flowing to Kansas? Well, this was the theory, right, of, of making it illegal. 
And this is the sort of absurdity of where we stand with water. So instead of trying to think of what is locally available, it's like, well, you can collect from your roof in any location in the U.S. I mean, even in Tucson and Phoenix, there are water harvesting systems that are in place that people use. Um, but yet, you know, we're willing to think like Powell, right, and connecting a whole watershed and prohibiting other peoples from doing other things when it's legally expedient or politically necessary to do that. So we don't do the right thing in terms of um, flexible, sustainable measures with water, uh, and we're willing to bend over backwards to make it harder for other people to be sustainable. And so that's that's really what I mean is that we have to be um, conscious that there is only one form of water we're going to be able to use consistently, and that's the renewable supply. Um, and it's not to be uh, a Luddite because I think there are ideas, and I'm looking at Arizona here in particular, about storing groundwater um, using surface water allocations to try to replenish aquifers. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in some ways if you'd asked me that 10, 15 years ago, I'd be well, that sounds absurd. Uh, now I'm of the mind that, you know, uh, well, isn't that better than a dam that evaporates 5, 10, 15 percent of its water supply every year? Uh, to store it underground where it would not be evaporated. So I think we're going to have to change our thinking about what infrastructure looks like. It's going to be a lot less visible. Hmm. But I also think we have to deal with the physical realities of water. You know, if water is neither created nor destroyed in the universe, following the <laughs> laws of thermodynamics, the second one, um, then we have to abide by this and, and think in rational ways, not like engineering innovation oh we could create water by doing this uh because some of those measures are just too expensive to sustain in the long term i always like to give authors a chance to you know to give us a preview of you know kind of what this book has led to or other kind of new projects that you that you want to let people know about yeah i mean I, i've come at this in a roundabout way because i fell in uh well frankly love with new mexico and New Mexicans and everything about that landscape, uh, you know, over two decades ago in the early 90s, and I wanted to come back to it. And uh, I'm always finding creative ways to try to find an excuse to get back down yeah, there. Yeah. One of the things I really do want to do more locally here in Colorado is look at how uh, prior appropriation, and this is the home of it in terms of trying to treat water um, access as a kind of private property, right? Um, is how the state of Colorado has tried to adapt its you know, 1973 in-stream flow program to put water back into rivers and streams and not let them um, eternally uh, dry out mm-hmm. um, and how that's going to change under climate change. Uh, so I'm working with a student right now on this small project as sort of a spinoff to try to bring this a little closer to home here in Colorado, some of the lessons that I think New Mexico has to teach us about water. Um, the second thing is a, a follow-up that will – put me back uh, more on, let's say, native sovereign terms and trying to examine what uh, 21st century conservation efforts led by indigenous peoples uh, looks like uh, in material terms. And that, that means including Bears Ears uh, National Monument and the controversy of its formation uh, and then rescission by the current administration uh, into two smaller units. Um, and what that particular story, along with, you know, the uh, Park Service taking over the Valles Caldera, the Blackfeet up in Montana wanting to create their own national park. Uh, that's a larger question, and I think that might be the next book project. But I don't, I don't know yet. I just know that I'm interested <laughs> in it. And I want to talk to people, and um, we'll see if I'm even the right person to write that. Um, I think that might be a 
real strong grounds for a kind of co-authorship and um, working with uh, native author authors uh, to try to create a more holistic picture about the, what are the terms of this um, and what, what will conservation look like in, in this century in the American West. So That sounds great. Thanks. Well, I hope I, I wish you a great remainder of the summer and uh, I hope we hope we cross paths soon. Uh, I'm sure we will. And uh, I'm sure I'll see you out there on the water somewhere, too. <laughs> Let's hope so. All right. All right. Take care, Eric. Thanks. Thanks, Brendan. I appreciate your time. Thanks for listening to this episode. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Rudd Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. Our theme music was provided by local Utah composer Micah Dahl Anderson. You can find him at Micah, D-A-H-L, Anderson with an O, dot com. I'll include a link in the episode description. Besides subscribing to the podcast, you can receive regular updates about upcoming episodes by following on Facebook or Twitter. My name is Brennan Rensink, and I serve here as the podcast host, producer, sound engineer, uh, and pretty much everything else. So if you have any praise or critiques, you should probably just send them my way. I'm associate director of the Red Center and an associate professor of history here at Brigham Young University. Feel free to contact me if you have any questions about the podcast, the Red Center, our live-streamed lectures and events, funding opportunities, or anything else. If you have books you think I should consider for an episode, please send them my way. One last plug, I'm also the project manager and general editor of a great digital public history project hosted here at the Red Center called Intermountain Histories. You can check it out by visiting www.intermountainhistories.org or download the free mobile app by searching Intermountain Histories on your Apple or Android devices. There you can read carefully curated histories of the region, complete with archival photos, bibliographies, and more. In any case, thanks again for listening to the episode. We'll see you next month.